0: Thank you, Tom. Thanks for the, the great music. Uh, thanks for all of the uh, scriptures that you used. Greg Morrow, everything just really fits right into today's theme, if you want to think about that, which is uh, uh, Christ, our hope in times of trouble. Uh, at least that's my theme. I wanted to thank you for your prayers. I wanted to thank you for your prayers for nations at war. It's One thing to just snap off your TV and say, I'm just gonna ignore that. I'm just not gonna pay attention to that. But it's a whole nother thing to face up to that and look at that and see that there are people suffering. They do not have the comforts that you have. And even in our anxieties that I'll speak of today, they don't have the peace of mind that you have. Thank you for praying for those countries. Thank you for praying for those who are sick here in this congregation and outside this congregation. Uh, and especially those who are caring for those who are sick. They're home today, some of them. Some of them are in hospitals, and uh, that's right here in just your small congregation, and there are many abroad. Um, I received some 327 texts in the last three weeks from people who want prayer, so many that I have to delete them all from my phone because it just overpowers, and I can't keep track of my... Of my business uh, and so I'm grateful for your prayers for the sick I'm, I'm grateful for your prayers for the lonely uh, for people who are shut in and single and divorced and I'm grateful especially for your prayers for the elders at this time where we do not have a, um, a leader uh, although Christ is our true leader I know you know that um, It's obvious by the fact that the seats are filled here that he is our firm foundation and that he is our chief shepherd, and we're grateful for your prayers for that and for your prayers for the preaching of the word while we wait for a new lead pastor to come and take his place here. And speaking of prayers, it's about time we had one together because I'm about to preach, and I definitely need the Holy Spirit's power before I get into that. Glorious Father, Grant us peace through your wondrous grace that through the preaching of your word here today we might find salvation, peace, strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow which can be found right here in your living, breathing word. In the name of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, we do pray. Amen. Well, I'm a man who, for as long as I can remember, has been prone to being awakened in the night by sinful anxiety over everything. From as long as I can remember, from the time I was a small boy, I worried about everything. I worried about uh, my parents, who would be fighting in the next room, and that just kept me awake at night and in shock and in horror that such a childhood innocence would be shattered by that kind of action between your parents. Um, I would be, I was keenly aware of what sin was having been raised a Roman Catholic and taught in catechism that you, you know, you stored up this amount of sins and then you got to go to confession. And so I remember being feeling guilty that I had waited this long to go to confession and I better get down there and cleanse my soul for whatever time remaining until I need to go down there and and cleanse it again. And I would lay awake at night thinking of the sins I I must be committing. Uh, And then I would be laying awake at night worried about the sinful behavior that my brothers and sisters, I'm one of six, would be falling into. We were raised in the 1960s and into the 1970s, and during that turbulent period, which is much like it is right now, actually, we would be falling into the sins that that generation fell into. Uh, There was promiscuity and drug abuse, and then finally violence, and all of that kept me awake at night. But, and then by the time I was 21, I actually had bleeding ulcers. And I, ha- I remember having a family doctor who taught me, Jeff, you just, ne- lean, excuse me, you just need to learn to not give a heck. And he didn't say heck. But, um, and so I, I really actually did adopt uh, a policy, a self-policy of learning to not care, not to be concerned about, about things. And that most certainly wasn't the answer. You see, what I was was a man without hope, I was a man without hope. Not any real hope, there was a false kind of hope. There was counseling and there was medications and I certainly got involved in some of that. Uh, But as many of you might know, if you've participated in that, if it's worldly counseling and medication without spiritual foundation, those are just kind of false hopes, false hopes. The Bible might even call it dead hope or hopelessness because I was a dead person spiritually, like all of you were before you became born again and like some of you may be still if you're not yet born again. The Bible says you're a dead person spiritually before you're born again. And I was in rebellion to the almighty God of heaven who created the universe down to the core in my heart, just as you were or you are. And that's why I couldn't find any fix for what was going on. That's why I couldn't find any fix for what kept me awake at night full of sinful anxiety. And I'm calling this anxiety sinful because it's the kind of anxiety that you can't get back to sleep. You keep rerunning in your mind what's keeping you awake. You start to maybe pray if you're in a current condition of being born again, and then you wake up again and you stay awake a while again. And when I call it sinful anxiety, what I mean is, is you're entertaining this anxiety over and over and over again without reaching for the hope that I'm going to present to you today. So I was dead in my trespasses and sins, the Bible says, in Ephesians and in chapter 2. And that means that I was unable to respond to any spiritual beckoning from God himself. When you're spiritually dead, you can't respond. You're not being drawn into salvation yet, if you're going to be a born-again Christian and ever If you're not, just as a dead corpse can't respond to breathing and living and walking and talking, a spiritually dead person cannot respond to God's commands, not even commands such as don't worry or be anxious for nothing. I don't remember a time in recent years since becoming born again 35 years ago that compares to that time where I was kept awake at night until right now, until right now. Right now, a foreign leader is murdering through his military might an entire country and laying to waste all of their real estate. And it doesn't really seem like we're doing much of anything. Oh, we say we're praying for them and we're with you in spirit. And we are sending bombs and bullets and we are sending blankets. But are we really defending the defenseless? I just, I'm just not sure what we should be doing there and that's keeping me awake at night. Right now, young men and women who wish to live as God intended them to, do, to live in raising their families and in the way they should raise their families, cannot even afford to live in this state, not unless they're wealthy. And I know that God does not call us to pursue monetary wealth. And that's in Luke 18.25, Mark 10.25, and Matthew 19.24, in case you wanna find my backup for that. He does call us to be generous if we're already wealthy. Right now, several of you are ill. And when I say you, I mean in Veritas congregation, and you don't know if you'll ever fully physically recover. Several of you, several of us are in pain, 365 days a year, 24 hours a day, and it's, it's everything you can do to make it through a day. Right now there are young men and women, teenagers actually, in this congregation, and I've received texts, and I won't call you by name today, who have high anxiety and dread about the war between Russia and the Ukraine. And you've even heard, and you might be right, that the Russian leader might even use nuclear weapons against anybody who tries to intervene on their behalf to defend them. And that's keeping them awake at night, parents. Right now, right here in this room amongst about 200 people, there are those, like I say, that are in physical pain. There are those that are lonely, having been left behind by their spouse, they're widowed, they're divorced, they're single with no prospect of a good spouse right now. Good meaning godly. There are folks whose elderly parents are failing and they're having to provide care weekly. And there are folks who have just lost their elderly parents and they are grieving. And they're just heartbroken. And I have to admit to you, especially after the 327 texts that I counted and, uh, and all of these factors and just so many more, all you have to do is turn on the news, you know that that sometimes when I wake at night, now I'm in sinful anxiety again. And by sinful, what I mean is, is I pray, and then I roll over and I go back to sleep, but I wake in a short time again, and I'm full of anxiety again. And it just seems that all hope is going away or that it's lost at times. But I've got some good news. I've got some good news, and we're going to go back to 1 Peter today in chapter 1, and starting in verse 3, in order to arm ourselves against stress. So this seems like a topical sermon, but really what I'm doing is I'm going back to what I preached to you almost four years ago, and it's just the gospel. And so if I have to have an outline today, which I really did not want to have to present to you, if I have to have an outline today, I would hope that the outcome of this is That you will see that the answer for your stress is the gospel. I hope you will see that the answer for your stress and anxiety is reaching for the gospel. So we're going to try to arm ourselves against stress. We're going to try to arm ourselves against anxiety and the depression it can bring. And in short, and to be very direct, We want to try to arm ourselves today against hopelessness, against hopelessness. I want to quote John Calvin here concerning this epistle, that is 1 Peter, its purpose in the words of John Calvin, and I quote, the main object of this epistle is to raise us above the world in order that we might be prepared and encouraged to sustain the spiritual contests." Of our warfare. It's to give us confidence in fighting against evil in our hearts, in our hearts. For this end, the knowledge of God's benefits avails much. For when their value appears to us, all other things will be deemed worthless, especially when we consider what Christ and his blessings are. For everything without him is but dross. And for those of you who don't know what that is, it's waste product. It's a metallurgic term. For this reason, he, Peter, highly extols the wonderful grace of God in Christ. That is, that we may not deem it much to give up the world in order that we may enjoy the invaluable treasure of a future life. So, Peter lifts up grace and puts it right into the forefront, right into your face, as the thing that would cause us to leave the world behind in our mind and look forward to a future life in salvation with Christ in heaven at the resurrection. That's what he's doing in this epistle. And he does it through exhortations, which means he's educating you and encouraging you in the scriptures. And he goes on to say, finally, and this is what this epistle is for also, and also that we may not be broken down by present troubles, but patiently enduring them, being satisfied with eternal happiness. That's according to John Calvin. Turn to the scripture today with me, will you? That's 1 Peter, 1 Peter, and it's chapter one, and we're going to read verses three to five aloud together in just a minute. And by the way, those can be found on the uh, in the Bibles in front of your seat backs on page 953 if you're using one of those. Parents, can you please encourage your children to read along with you, those that are in here? They've graduated from class, and just to read along with their eyes, or they can read aloud. I really like to encourage the kids to read really loud, just like that. Okay? So again, we're going to read this together in one second. 1 Peter chapter 1, starting with verse 3 all the way to verse 5. I don't see any disgruntled faces yet amongst the kids. Here we go. All right. Let's read aloud together are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, amen. Great job kids, I heard some really young voices saying all those great big huge words so clearly. There's our hope, there's our hope. It's the hope of the ages, it's hope in Christ. It's a living hope According to the scripture, and it should be in your mind and now written on your heart, the hope we have in Christ is a living hope. When you say you hope for something in the world, it's really just a dream. It's passing away. No matter what you hope for, and I hope for these things for you too, a new house, a new car, just a place to rent that you can afford and still eat. um, All of those things are good. A hope for a raise... New wife, not a new wife, a wife. Wow. <laughs> I'm going to take some hits for that one. Yes, okay, I'm not eating today, and I'll be sleeping under the porch tonight. Anyway, all of these things just pass away. They all decay. They're destroyed. Even, get this, world peace is an empty hope. Oh, I want world peace. Believe me, I want peace amongst the nations. I want fellow man to love fellow man, but not at the expense of having everyone unsaved, not born again. That's the plan and cleverness of Satan himself, to have peace amongst the nations and no Christ. Satan wants you dead. He wants to take you with him because he already knows that Christ is going to destroy him completely at his second coming. So what kind of hope is this that we're talking about? It's the hope that we inherit from Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's not the hope for something. It's hope in something that has already happened. And according to the scriptures today and the truth of the scriptures is, it's the hope in something that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's in our scripture today. That's what Peter is trying to to point out to you. That's what gives you your living hope. That's what causes you to be born again. The fact that Jesus Christ was executed on your behalf and then raised from the dead, and your subsequent belief after hearing the gospel preached and then one day become born again, that's where your hope is. It's the hope that we inherit from Jesus Christ, according to the scriptures here, as compared to the hopelessness that we inherited from Adam, our first father. From Adam, we inherited sin and death, and from Adam, we inherited separation from and war with the God of the universe who made us originally for his glory. But from Jesus Christ, we inherit life eternal and peace with God, that is reconciliation, and that's all on his behalf. That's what we inherit from Jesus Christ. We inherit life eternal in peace with God, and it's not the kind of peace that the world knows. The reason the world's at war is because every man, woman, and child is at war with God in their hearts unless they become born again. And as we can read in the scriptures, as we mature and read on and read on, we know that most, probably most, will not be born again. We know that at least many will not be born again. So when you have that many millions or billions of people in the world who will not be born again, how are you going to have world peace according to Christ, not world peace according to Jeff or the newscaster or the presidents? World peace from their point of view means you're not shooting at each other anymore. You're not fighting over laws and regulations and rules and real estate, religion. From Christ Jesus, we inherit eternal peace. It's not the kind of peace that we got from Adam. That's just hopelessness and it doesn't have peace not peace with God, but it's the kind of peace that Jesus offers to his disciples in the book of John in chapter 14 when he says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. Not as the world gives you, do I give it to you. And then he goes on to say, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you, he said. This means the peace that comes from the salvation that I'm about to make possible for you. That's the peace he's leaving with them. The reconciliation with God the Father, that's the peace I'm leaving with you. And then he goes on to say, let not your hearts be troubled neither let them be afraid." And now that is the killer. This from a man, a God-man, but a man, who was about to go out that night and be betrayed by his dearest friends, spat upon and mocked, have his beard torn from his face, beat almost to death by morning so that he can carry a wooden beam. that he's going to be hanged from until he suffocates for you. That's the guy who's saying peace. You think he had a reason to be stressed? Well, he was stressed. They said blood came from his face in the garden as he wept, as he was about to be executed. So peace with God's our inheritance, and it's also our living hope. What kind of inheritance did we get in verse 4? What's the inheritance Peter's speaking of here? It's the kind of inheritance that cannot be lost. It's being kept safe by God in heaven, waiting to be revealed in its final form. This is at the second coming of Christ. When your body is raised from the ground after having been dead and your spirit is reunited with it, let me read to you the kind of imper- excuse me, the kind of inheritance that we're going to have. First Peter one, four to five. It's an inheritance that's imperishable. It cannot be killed. It cannot be destroyed. Undefiled, it cannot be corrupted either by man nor by Satan himself. It cannot be perverted and turned into something evil. It's unfading. It will not diminish. It will not become less and less and less a reward. It's called a crown of glory in scriptures. And it's kept in heaven for you, the scripture goes on to say, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And speaking of our inheritance, here's a vision for us anxious folk, you awake at night pastors, Parents and worried teenage men and women. This inheritance is the vision to grab onto in the middle of the night or first thing in the morning or on your lunch hour when you're stressed. This is what you should picture in your mind when you're distraught. It's Christ, Jesus Himself. Picture His face. He's your crown of glory. It's heaven, heaven walking at the foot of God. You're not on this earth anymore. Or the first meeting with the creator of the universe when he says to you, welcome in, good and faithful son or daughter. Welcome in. Come enjoy the inheritance that's been prepared for you. Just after he says to the one next to you on the judgment day, get away from me, you're a fake you worker of iniquity, throw him or her outside in the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Imagine the relief you'll have that you are not one of those. Here's a vision for you to reach for if you're suffering in pain all day, year long, it's worse at night, or you're dying, physically. From Revelations chapter 21 and in verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, that is, the believers. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying. Oh, that's so cool. Did they do that on purpose? <laughs> nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. For those who are born again and are asking anxiously, why me? Why me? I actually hear this every week from one or two. I've always gone to church on Sunday. I was raised in a Christian home. I love the Lord. I give my tithes and offerings. (laughs) Seems to be a big one. Why am I being made to suffer? Why? Why? and the answers in today's scripture, would you please look upon verse six, that is 1 Peter 1 verse six. I'm gonna read to verse nine. In this you rejoice, that is in this, you thought of your salvation. Though now for a little while, and a little while means for the rest of your life as a Christian, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold when it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Stop right there for a minute. That's the reason for your trials, however severe, even if you're dying. It's a priceless test of your priceless faith. Every Christian is tested. Every Christian will have fiery trials, some not as extreme as the rest. You can be suspicious if you say you're a born again Christian and you've never been tried. You can be suspicious right now. Though you do not, excuse me, though you have not seen him, the scripture goes on to say, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I'm going to go back to you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. I have not seen any of that lately, not from one. This kind of rejoicing requires us to reach for the visions that I'm talking about here today, especially with times as dark as they are now. That seem hopeless, seem painful. That kind of rejoicing requires you to reach for that vision the vision of your final salvation in heaven. Here's a question for you. Is there anything that we can do to get rid of the anxiety and remembering today that your answer should be that glorifies God, anything we can do that glorifies God? Because I could think of a whole lot of sinful things that I, that I could do. Well, the answer is yes, and that's what this epistle is really about. And he didn't bring this one to the forefront in the epistle, but first... Pray. Pray. Pray while reading the scriptures. If you don't read your Bible and you're calling yourself a Christian, think again. How can you pray in the way that God wants you to pray unless you read your Bible? There's an admonishment. I know when I haven't been reading. I have to read daily, but you notice the way I said that I have to read daily. I'm a pastor. I got to read daily, but I have to read daily because I crave to read daily because there's so many demands for help. There's so much of an outcry for help. I sometimes just throw my hands up in the air and go, I just don't even know what to do. And I go, what am I thinking? And then you got to open the book. We've taken to, uh, The men on on Wednesday mornings that come, we've taken to reading a scripture before we pray. Each one of us, before we pray, we read a scripture. And that's something I actually learned from John Piper years ago. And it's something that has really helped me to not just come off the cuff and pray. I just open a scripture, favorite scripture of the day. You can most certainly, if you're an astute reader, find a psalm or something that pertains to what you're going through right now and then read it and pray. That's the wise way to go. Sometimes I just go... Okay, there's a scripture I'm gonna read today and God always is faithful in giving me a prayer. Exercise your living hope. That's what we can do. Exercise your living hope. That is, you are to participate in your sanctification. Sanctification is a word and it is a doctrine heavily studied by pastors of the church and it's something that happens to you the moment you're born again. It starts with repentance, sanctification, and repentance go hand in hand. You're trying to live a life that's free of sin now. That's sanctification. Participate in it. That's one way to get rid of hopeless anxiety. Peter exhorts us to do that as a form of worship which bring God's name glory. Let's read about it. I'm going to go beyond today's text. I'm going to go to 1 Peter 1:13. You can follow along with your eyes if you want, and I'm going to read to 16. This is how he wants us to participate in our sanctification or exercise our living hope, as I'm calling it today. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So be sober-minded, become sober-minded. We're not sober-minded before we're born again, become sober-minded. Is it just me or is it scripture insinuating here that we all have vices that distract us from godliness? They distract us from enduring what God has in store for us, and a lot of that is trials. In the scripture, it said, God disciplines and chastises every son and daughter that he plans to bring home. That's paraphrased. Two different scriptures actually morphed into one. He disciplines and or chastises every single son or daughter that he plans to bring home. Every single one. In his disciplining us, if we're not sober-minded, we're ignoring it so we're to get rid of anything that doesn't keep us sober-minded. Now, keep in mind in these lists that there are things that you can use in self-control, and it's not sin, fully aware of that, and I do participate in some of these things, especially eating and, well, I should be going to the gym, but (laughs) I used to list drugs first as the things that uh, distract us from being sober-minded due to my past. But in current years, I've come to see that it's self-gratification and self-idolatry in many forms that keep us from being sober-minded. And I'm finding today that in most of the counsel that we do with young men, and I'm hearing from young women, although I don't counsel young women, the use of pornography is first. That's number one now, it's not drugs anymore. It's number one. Number two, media devices. They keep us from being sober-minded. They're so handy, they're so helpful and they're so addictive, and you've seen it, five teenagers walking down the street, not picking on teenagers here, which is not fair, because it happens in, in living rooms. They're walking down the street, side by side, and in the old days, we'd be walking down the street, we'd be on the way to the park to play sandlot baseball, or we would be riding our bikes, and we would be shouting at the top of our lungs, raising all kinds of heck, but we were having fun, and we were talking to each other, now, there's five people I've seen this walking down the street. They each have a phone, and they're each on a different conversation with somebody else miles away. So that can be an addictive thing because you become distracted from the present. What, you're, what is your job right now that you're supposed to be doing? Are you a mother? Are you a father? Are you supposed to be attending to your children, but you're on the phone miles away? Just a second, honey. I'll get you food. I fed you yesterday. That's just an extreme example. Smoking, and I'm including vaping there, folks, sorry. Smoking, it can keep us from being sober-minded. Sex, and I'm referring to sex outside of marriage between a husband and a wife, a man and a woman. It's not just immoral, it becomes an addiction. Keeps us from being sober-minded and paying attention to the things of God. Drugs, of course. I won't go into that in detail today. It'll take me all day. Alcohol. You can use alcohol. God's word says it's okay to use alcohol, but it's not okay to get drunk. It's not okay to use alcohol in front of a brother who's weakened to it. This is all scripture. Alcohol distracts us. Working out at the gym. Whoa, Pastor Jeff. I've seen you and you're not in the best of shape these days, and I am, look at me, I'm going to the gym. Okay, that's good, and I should be, and you're right. (laughs) But working out at the gym can become an obsession. It used to be with me, believe it or not. And you can take all the hours that you should be at home tending to your family, by the way, which gets you great exercise, working out at the gym. Food, that's my favorite, and it's killing me. I'll tell you about that sometime. Anything that distracts us from worshiping and ignoring the sanctification of our God. Being sober minded means to have self control over the sinful use of anything so as not to be distracted from God's truth and beauty. I'll say that again. Being sober minded means to have self control over the sinful use of anything so as not to be distracted from God's truth and beauty. So this is all part of exercising our living hope. I've got another one. This is a good one. Stop sinning. I mean, of course, we all know we, we become born again and we still sin. We had a young woman, she might be here, ask one of the pastors one day, pastor so-and-so, how come if we're believers in Christ, we still sin? Well, she put us on the spot. It took two of us to go through the scriptures and wow, what a great thing. <clears throat> Stop sinning. We know we still sin, but it's clear in this epistle and in the other epistles in the New Testament that now we're a new creation in Christ, as Paul calls us, or born again to a living hope, as Peter calls us. We're to go out of our way to stop sinful behavior from reigning, controlling our mortal bodies. No habitual, sinful behavior. I use the 10 Commandments as my guide these days along with my remembrance and knowledge of my former sins of when I was not born again. I keep those right here so that a red light goes on, beep, 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 when I'm going into an area of where I could be tempted like the olden days, and I avoid it. Paul said, I don't even want to make provision for the flesh. It's the same thing, making provision for the flesh means to stay out of places or areas or activities that will tempt me into doing the sins that I used to do as an unbeliever. How else can we exercise our living hope? According to 1 Peter in verse 22, and this is the most powerful one of all, love one another. Love one another. Here it is, 1 Peter 1, 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, that means by your belief in the gospel truths, making you born again. For a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. That pure heart was given to you by God. You did not have it before. Now that you've got a pure heart, love one another earnestly So I'm going to call that sacrificially. There it is. Love one another sacrificially. You know what I'm talking about, Veritas. You really know. I've seen you. You do it. Some of the members of this church just, it still just blows my mind. It's like they read your mind. They call, hey, heard you were having a bad time. What can we do? And we just get request after request after request and offer and offer. I hope you're doing that to people that are not pastor families. I think you are. I've watched and I can see the response to the prayer requests. And the askance, hey, what can I pray for? And it's just a great thing. Such a small congregation that replies in such a big way. To love one another. Our anxiety can scare us away from that, can it? Our anxiety, our fear of man. We've seen a lot of that in the last few years. I won't go into detail. We've seen a lot of that. How anxiety can scare you out of going and physically loving a brother and sister when they're in need. I'll pray for you, brother. Pray for you, sister. There's scriptures that deal with that, right? That attitude. Do it in spite of your anxiety. Remember, you're no longer behind this form of love. It's God's Holy Spirit that fuels this kind of love. Some small things. Take a friend to lunch. Take a family in need a meal. Here's a big one. Visit a hospital room. Visit a lonely person or a shut-in. Don't tell them you feel sorry for them, and that's why you're here. Say, what can we do? You want to play a card game? Let's have lunch. They'll spill it. They'll spill their heart. And then you can just listen and cry with them. They love it. They wait for it. They're abandoned from it. These have just been a few short ways that we can participate in our salvation, in our living hope that can relieve us from stressful anxiety. I found that the the examples I've just given you work 100% of the time, although I still do wake in anxiety. I still do slip into sinful anxiety in the middle of the night. I'll give you a remedy for that in a second. In conclusion, God raised Jesus from the dead, causing those whom he called to be his own to be born again, so that their faith and hope would be in God. That's 1 Peter 1, 21. Our hope is not in good health. We are going to die. It's part of God's plan. Kids, don't get get scared that Pastor Jeff said that. It's okay. And the scriptures even declare that precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Psalm 116, 15. Our hope is not in becoming wealthy or even having a place to live. For the last three years when Jesus lived here, he lived on the road and his roof was the sky. Paul said he'd be content with food and clothing, but he never mentioned a place to live. He died, executed in prison, wrote most of the new, Testament epistles from prison. He was beheaded for his faith. Our hope is not in or for a government leader that will surely defend us from a madman thousands of miles away who could annihilate our whole country with the flip of a switch. As the psalmist says, the war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might, it...